What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And, drumroll, making her first appearance as special guest on our show is someone very important to me. As some of our listeners might recall during our episode on The Eye of the World, as well as also one time during our patron-exclusive episode on Reading Habits, I explained how I began reading and how I began writing, and now reviewing books because of the influence of one particular person. Ladies and gentlemen, and all of our friends in between, appearing now on the podcast for the first time is none other than the woman who bought me my first Wheel of Time book, nay, the woman who taught me how to read in the first place, my own mother, Linda DuPont. Welcome to the show, Mom. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, thank you for teaching me to read in the first place. Oh, you're quite welcome. It kept you out of trouble. It did. Well, not completely. Now, my mom joins us today on episode 75 to help us wrap up our discussion on Mistborn, the Well of Ascension. Being an avid Sanderson fan, as I am, of course I made my mom read the trilogy back in the day, way back in the day. So uh, before we get started, though, I need to ask, even though I know the answer, just for whoever's listening, mom, which of Brandon Sanderson's books have you read? Okay, so I've read all three of the books in the Mistborn trilogy. Yep. I've read all of the Wax and Wayne books. Okay. As well as um, Elantris and Warbreaker. Okay, so you haven't read Stormlight Archive, nor have you read Mistborn's Secret History. No. Okay, so in the interest of preserving the experience of the Stormlight Archive for her, uh, as well as some of our deeper Cosmere lore segments, you know, we're going to focus on solely the Well of Ascension for this discussion today. And then we're going to open up our uh, deep penetrative lore segment, the name of which hurts me to say in the (laughs) presence of my mother, uh, to talk everything Mistborn. But it will still be just, just Mistborn. So, deal? Sure. Yeah. All right. So now we hand it off to Drew so that he can recap the subject material for this week. Drew, blast this off, man. All right. So last week we left off where um, the revelation came out that Set had entered into Luthadel and Elend had been kind of deposed as king and we were set up for a vote to decide who the next king is going to be. Elend was trying to kind of game the system, figure out a way to... uh, basically get it to to be a stalemate and that would leave him in power but he kind of realizes that would be an immoral thing to do and anyway lord penrod uh surprisingly wins the vote and is elected king so elland kind of takes it upon himself to you know step out of the uh the king role but still be a leader to the people continues wearing his suits and and you know using what he learned from tindwell but very quickly despite that things unravel Zane convinces Vin to help him just destroy Set's forces, tricks Vin into thinking that Set himself is a misborn, but she finds out that he is not, uh, puts Straff in a, a very powerful position, and Straff eventually realizes, you know what, uh, I can just pull away and let the Coloss attack the city. So Sazed and Tind will engineer a situation to get Elend and Vin and Spook out of the city to save them, and while they are on the road north, the Coloss do attack, clubs and Doxen are killed, but Vin figures out it was a trick, and she turns around and comes back and saves Luthadel, figuring out that a Duralumin-fueled uh, soothing can take over Coloss. 
with the army of Kolos under her control, Set's army comes back thanks to Alrion, and they destroy Straff's army. Vin kills Straff in one of the most awesome scenes Brandon has ever written. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and afterward, Vin, you know, finds the Well of Ascension, goes back into Credit Shaw, back into that mysterious room from the first book, figures out the Allomantic puzzle, heads down into the caverns, finds the Well of Ascension, and does not take up the power, thus releasing something. And uh, the Miss Spirit was trying to get her not to do it, and in, in uh, an attempt to do that, stabbed Elland, and uh, Vin, you know, still let the power go, but fed Elland a bead of some metal, and we are left with Elland suddenly also being a Mistborn. Mmm. Mmm. That perfect ending there. So normally what we do on these parts here, uh, Mom, is we, we jump right into style first. So we're going to talk about Brandon Sanderson's style and how what we liked, what we didn't like about, uh, how, well, you know, the second half of The Well of Ascension. And I'll kick us off. At any point, you know, of course, Drew or Mom, jump in. You know, feel free to disagree. Feel free to agree vehemently. Um, I want to talk about this avalanche, this Sanderson avalanche. Of course you have to talk about it in The Well of Ascension. It's really something that from the first moment, which I consider to be the first moment of the the avalanche, I consider that to be Sazed and Tindwell as they're embracing, and then the alarms of the attack sound. And then the last moment, of course, as Vin is drearily explaining to Penrod that she controls the Coloss now, and that she just wants to rest. So after the, the pacing of the first 80% of this book, things absolutely flew during the ending that we got. I've stated before that I don't agree myself that this book is paced slowly, at least as much as people like to gripe about. But even I can't argue that the pacing really explodes. It really just takes off once the Colas attack properly starts. How do we feel about the pacing? First off, I'll ask you, Mom. What'd you feel? Well, I th thought it was reflective of the way things sometimes go in real life. Sometimes you have a few months where you know, nothing really seems to happen. Things are building. And then all of a sudden, once, you know, things are set in motion, just, you know, yeah. things go quickly. Once the right thing happens, everything's out of control. Drew, what about you, dude? So I, I agree somewhat with what you said, Rob. Um, last week, I talked a lot about the problems I had with the first half of this book. I felt like there was just not a lot happening in terms of character development, even though there was action, it it wasn't. It, it felt like filler action. It was it was there to to try and engage the reader and pull us along, while the really meaty, juicy parts of the book weren't really there. From page one of what we read this week, it it was a completely different book to me. I I had never read this book in such you know discrete chunks. And I never realized it, but it really was, like, from nearly the 50% mark, suddenly, character development, constant character development. Vin is changing, Zane is changing, Ellen is changing, Sezed and Tindwell are developing in their relationship. I mean, it, it was, like I said, it almost felt like a completely different book. It was so packed full of movement, whether it's action and, and violence and battles and assassinations or internal movement for the characters I, it was almost overwhelming reading it this time around just because I of where we chopped it in half here where, where it was 
yeah, it, it just was overwhelming, and it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome it definitely was. Again, <laughs> even though I think that, for myself, the, the first half of this book isn't as slow as people like to gripe about, I still can't deny just how much faster the whole second half is. I just consider that extra speed. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, no, going further on into style, though, I also want to talk about how Brandon decided to split the respective parts of this book. In The Final Empire, the book previous, Brandon gave us five parts to the narrative. You know, the titles, Rebels Beneath the Sky of Ash, Children in a, uh, of a Bleeding Sun. Uh, in Hero of Ages, the next book in the series, that's not a spoiler to say that, again, we get five distinct parts to the narrative. And in large part, for book two, The Well of Ascension, today's subject, Brandon does the same thing. The entire conflict of the book, as it's set from the very beginning, kind of ends after part five, once the Kolos threat is finally dealt with, Luthadel is saved, Ellen Venture now assumes the role of Emperor, but in this one, Brandon saw fit to give us one more part, and that is part six, Words in Steel. Brandon gave us an entire other part to prepare us for what is coming in Hero of Ages, and I thought it was so appropriate despite the fact that I've never really noticed this discrepancy until literally yesterday, the fact that the books, their parts go five, six, and five. And at first, I was tempted to write down, I think part six is really the start of Hero of Ages, rather than the ending of The Well of Ascension. But now, the more I look at it, especially looking at these chapter epigraphs, uh, that, that part five that ended the narrative proper, and part six kind of ended the narrative of the epigraphs. It, just before we continue, I forgot to ask before we yeah. started. Mom, do you know what chapter epigraphs are? No. Those are the little sentences at the very beginnings of the chapters. Oh, okay. That are kind of just not okay. really related to this, the arc that's currently happening. Okay. So I, I do want to talk about chapter epigraphs. Drew, what do you think, dude? Be- before we get to the chapter epigraphs, oh? I, I'm really glad you brought up the the structure of this book. And how okay, yeah, let's go. parts of this book. Right. And that there are five parts in Final Empire and five parts in Hero of Ages. And I think there there are some valid reasons for why Brandon Sanderson had this sort of like epilogue climax part six in this book. Yeah. But also there's something very thematically clever that he did here. There are 16 parts to this trilogy. No way. Oh my God, the math checks out. (laughs) I hadn't considered that. With with how important a number 16 is in in Mistborn and on Scadrial. Brandon absolutely did that on purpose. <laughs> wow. I, I don't believe... I haven't even... Dis- I've realized that until now. Really yeah. nicely done there. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> but yeah, the, the chapter epigraphs, though. What do we, what have we feel about those? Oh, I loved them in this part. I, I loved how uh, truncated they became as the pace of the book picked up. Yes. And we started getting single sentences, and then the sentences started getting shorter and shorter. And... It, it, it just, you know, built this this pressure behind. You're like, okay, why why are these becoming shorter? What is he holding on to? What is what is going to be at the end of this? And then, boom, you get that. You know, he he must not you know be allowed to give up the power and release what is you know trapped in the in the well. And you're like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to turn that same question on my mom too. The chapter epigraphs now, uh, not. Not being a first-time reader, but somebody who's who's not as familiar as, or who hasn't obsessively read as many times as somebody like Drew or I. These chapter epigraphs, how did you feel about them, Mother? 
You mean compared to his other books or just in general? Well, did they, have you seen other books with them? Did they kind of pull you out a little bit? Did they confuse you? Did you, were you following along with the context what these little random statements are? Yeah, they definitely confused me. They made me think. I really liked them though because they kind of forced you to open up your mind as to what else could possibly be going on? What are we missing? Yes. You know, it forced me to go back and reread certain parts of the book. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the, the context that they give us, it's just so cool to get something in world like that when we realize these are the writings of Quan, the, the ancient terrorist philosopher who originally assumed he had found the hero of ages. And going with what you were saying there a couple minutes ago, Drew, I, I was so excited and giddy while you were talking about it because I, I agreed. I wrote down a lot of the exact same thing about the pace of these epigraphs. I love that franticness, for lack of a better word, that they bring as our plot is accelerating and, and, and Luthadel is under attack. Um, even though at this point they're still kind of unconnected with the struggle that we have going on. And then when we get to the climax in part six, Brandon still breaks up breaks them up, the epigraphs, just like he does with points of view during his avalanche. They get shorter and shorter as they head our chapters. We end up seeing, as you said, Drew, single sentences. And then we even see them split. Sentences split across two different chapters. The penultimate chapter begins with Elendi. Well, I guess it's the ultimate since it's the last technical chapter. The next one is the epilogue. Elendi must not reach uh, no, the well it, of a sentence. It is, uh, it is an actual chapter. It is? Yeah. The the epilogue does not have a uh, an epigraph. Oh, wow. Chapter okay, I thought it was... is oh. the Alendi must not, you know, reach the Well of Ascension, and then chapter 59 right. is the... Yeah. Okay, so I was right the first time I wrote down, the penultimate chapter has Alendi must yeah. not reach the Well of Ascension, and then the final chapter. After we hear the voice go, I am free, we get this last part of the yes. sentence. The piece of Sazed's translation that was changed, and then torn out for he must not be allowed to release the thing that is imprisoned there. What a setup for the next and final volume. I wrote down 11 out of 10 oh. execution. Just chef's kiss. Phenomenal. Yeah, this is one of the best climaxes Brandon has ever written, in my opinion. Uh, just mm. the... You know, like I said earlier, with that pressure, the, the release of all of this pressure that's been building up over a very long book... Uh, you know, this is, I think, the longest book he's written outside of the Stormlight Archive. You know, it's it's a monster. And, <laughs> Wheel uh, of Time. <coughs> well, I mean... <laughs> I know, I know what you're saying. I was just being pedantic. <laughs> um, and actually, I'm, I, I'd have to look up the word count. This might be even longer than a couple of the Wheel of Time books. I know A Memory of Light is longer, but it might be longer than Gathering Storm. Anyway, uh, the... Just, just the fireworks and the way he... He paces the chapters, the, the chapters get shorter, the epigraphs get shorter, and, and then we, we have just this crazy revelation at the end. Like, you know, we feel like we finally have things under control for our main characters, and then suddenly, totally not under control anymore. <laughs> That's actually the end of my style discussions. Is there anything that either of you uh, had, had decided to talk about regarding Brandon Sanderson's style before we go into our characters? Uh, I, I don't have anything else for this book, now. Okay. All right. All right. So, jumping into characters then, let's start with Vin, our, our main character, of course. 
I want to. I just want to say I loved Vin's arc through this entire book, and the second half is no exception. You know, I just I want to talk about first her attack on Set's tower with Zane. Oh, pardon me. There's a little bit of burp there. Uh, the reason for this being why I want to talk about it is because on my first read and, and a lot of the reads that followed, I really enjoyed the scene. I enjoyed it. Not the morbidity of it, but seeing Vin get to release, get to act in a manner that we had expected of someone like Kelsier, who, mm -hmm. like him or not, was a very effective person. And, and obviously I see it very differently now. You know, I've already mentioned in previous episodes how I'm seeing Kelsier now in my adult years in a far different light than my teenage self saw him. And the scene is the same, for that exact same reasoning too. It bothered me to see Kelsier slaughtered, or just slaughter guards and anyone who he interprets as upholding the final empire without guilt or remorse. And it's even worse now seeing Vin do it. But I think it's important that it still happened to show Vin precisely who it is that she doesn't want to become. So. Yeah, I, the, you know, the, the spectacle of the scene is exciting, it's cool, it's one of those scenes that if, if and when this ever comes to the big screen, uh, is going to be just incredible to watch. <laughs> but what, what the real beauty of this the whole sequence is is what it does to Vin internally and, and how it breaks her and allows her to be remade. I mean, it's it's such a theme throughout Brandon Sanderson's books that his characters have to be broken in some way and reforge themselves to create a better person going forward. Mm -hmm. And this is the real moment that we see Vin finally break uh, as, as her misborn side. And I think it, it's really emblematic that after going on this huge killing spree and in realizing what she did, she goes back to Kamen's old hideout and she goes and crawls into the little, you know, uh, you know, spy loft that she started in her very first chapter in the final empire when she was up there. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, it shows how much she's grown as a character and how far she's gone, but also shows how much she could fall if she gave in to this side of her. I think it really shows how she is influenced by Zane too and what the consequences of allowing herself to be influenced by Zane. If yeah. she, cause there's that whole question throughout the book um, ever since she meets Zane, whether she is going to leave with him or whether she's going to stay with Ellen because he's trying to get her to leave with him. Um, and I think this is a wonderful example of, and this is where I think she realizes what she will become if she chooses to stick with Zane and allow him to influence her. Yeah, and, and, and how much Zin, Zin, oh my God. Zane <laughs> ultimately reminds her, despite the fact that she, you know, hadn't considered it. Zane reminds her of Kelsier. And then mm -hmm. she has to she has to think about the fact that she deliberately chose not to be like Kelsier. She chose Ellen Venture. She chose his youthful optimism and his carefree innocence. You know, and and it's good that she was brought face to face with making that decision. Uh, it was a cool chapter, and like I said, I think it's very important that it happened because it it it, it goes to show Vin where she doesn't want to go, and it helps mm -hmm. her make more decisions in the future that will ultimately benefit her and everybody she loves. So, 
And the following chapter, when we go back to Ellen's point of view and he finds her in, you know, Cameron's hideout, it, it shows her what she can go back to with him, where he says he trusts her, you know, where, where he's not getting angry with her, that, that he's not, you know, so many other characters would have reacted in much worse ways, but it's that moment that Ellen proves to her, this is why you're with me. This is why, you know, you, you know, that trust, you know, that was such a huge theme for Vin in the first book. And, and here it comes back around that she wants to be able to trust people and she wants people to trust her. And here, Ellen is proving, I trust you. Yeah. And Will it's you so, trust me? It's so appropriate that you bring that exact thing up, that theme of trust. Because not only in this scene does Ellen prove that he trusts her. But that's also the very reason later that she decides Zane is not the one. Because she makes a move to follow him and he does it, he's not expecting it. And he turns to her with suspicion, flaring his medals mm -hmm. because he doesn't trust her. So you're absolutely right. Trust is such a central point for these characters and their conflicts and the resolution of their conflicts. I mean, the oh, you know what? That was actually almost a spoiler. It's not really a spoiler. We'll bleep this out if it is. The last part <laughs> in Hero of Ages is called Trust. Yeah. Right? It's such a... Yep. It's, yeah, it's I mean, so it's indicative. A, it's a play on words, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's um, I, the, oh, it, yeah. Well, and, and it, you know, it just goes to show with Zane how she can't trust him. He doesn't trust her, and she can't trust him. He lied to her this whole time. He gave her the bead of adium that wasn't actually a bead of adium. He deceived her. Well, she doesn't know, you know about that yet in this moment. No. She's no, about she to find out. But, yeah, but, but it's... You know, once we know that, we it's just another, you know, another thing on the list of reasons why Zane was never the right one for her. Mm. And just the fact that he's Ellen's brother is just, you know, so yeah. dramatically appropriate. So, so romantic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and, and my last point on Vin specifically before we go into Hero of Ages later. Her moment inside the Well of Ascension was exactly, I wrote down, exactly what we'd hoped it to be and everything that we had feared it to be. She released mm -hmm. the power as we knew and trusted she would. And now she's kicked off events that are potentially uh, world ending. So that's got to be, that's got to weigh heavily upon one's conscience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, hey, the path to hell, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I think there was an interesting point that Linda brought up earlier when you were talking about the epigraphs and how. Uh, you felt kind of the need to go back and reread some things to put them in context. And that rereading, I thought, played in much more for me this time around, you know, knowing what the twist is at the end already. I found myself going back and reading the specific wording that were given in some of the Seized chapters and comparing it to the epigraphs as we're getting toward the end of the book and seeing what, what subtle changes Ruin made, other than, of course, the big one. You know, but things like changing announcer to holy first witness. You know, there, there are all these little, little things that helped Sazed piece it together. Where he started realizing, wait a second, this doesn't match. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't jive. The, the narrative here doesn't, <laughs> doesn't fit together. It's not watertight. And so yeah. you go back and read it and you, and you start realizing, oh yeah, there's, there's another key there. And there's a hint here. And... It's, it's neat. It's, it's a, a beautiful puzzle that Brandon fit together by the end of this book. Sweet. Sweet. That's everything I have to say about Vin. 
Anything left about Vin, either of you? Uh, other than I absolutely love, you know, what she is allowed to do once she she reforges herself, once she achieves this inner peace and, and understanding of herself, and how at the end of this book she once again gets to be a Mistborn, a full, crazy, you know, fireworks and glory Mistborn, but in in a good purpose rather than a duplicitous purpose. Hmm. Sweet. Uh, Mom, Vin, anything? You had told me that you liked uh, her, a scene of hers with Alrian, right? Well, yes, when they were oh. in the dress shop. Or oh, is that... Sorry, that's, is that what... Did I, yeah, did I just take one of your favorite scenes? Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> we can oh, talk damn. about that after. <laughs> Sorry. But one thing I would like to mention about Vin, and this is something that... Um, not to be sexist or, or anything, but it might be something that women tend to pick up, pick up on more than men, is that constant internal struggle that all women feel at one point of their lives between doing and choosing what they think is best for them versus what is best for everybody. And I, that's hmm. represented in her having to choose between Zane who at first she, well, obviously she doesn't realize um, who he really is and what he's capable of until he turns on her. But her decision to stay with Zane or to stay with Ellen, I mean, that's something that a lot of women have to choose between in, in real life. They have to choose between do they stay with the family and do what's best for everybody or do they pursue something else for their own sake. So, so how did you? So, you, how would you feel about Sanderson's uh, handling of that subject matter? Because obviously, Drew and I, as men, really can't comment on it. <laughs> but well, uh, I, how did you feel? Sorry, go ahead. I loved it because ultimately, we find out that going with him would have been the wrong choice, and mm-hmm. it, he's not as great as he appeared to be. And once again, choosing you know, the good of everybody over, you know, your own selfish desires, perhaps, um, you know, like, obviously that is the right choice. And that Sweet. is a lesson that we take from this. Nice. nice. That's well, really interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered it in that light before, but it does make sense. I mean, I know that's something my my wife talks about all the time, how how difficult it is for her sometimes to choose what's the smart decision for herself rather than you know, uh, what she perceives as better for other people. You know, she she doesn't like hurting other people. And if she sees something, she's more willing to sacrifice for herself than to do something that might hurt somebody else. It, it, it's really interesting how that how that plays in here. I, I just had never considered that before. Yeah, neither did I. That's why we have a, a plethora of guests appearing on the show. We always try to get somebody new. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's everything for Vin. Anything else about Vin before we go on to Mr. Ellen Venture? Let's do Ellen. Ellen? Sound good? All right. Okay. Ellen freaking Venture, everybody. How perfectly did this second half of the book set him up to be the Emperor Venture that we need in the Hero of Ages? Ellen Venture, how'd you feel? Either of you. I loved it. Uh, you know, we, we talked about, we kind of joked about it in the first book, how uh, Ellen felt like a pretty bland character. 
he is so not a bland character anymore. I mean, the <laughs> the amount this guy changed and grew, especially in the second half of this book, it is is in, incredible. You know, he's mm. he's become a ruler and a leader rather than you know just <clears throat> like a a fairly a fairly tame um, sort of reader insert potential. <laughs> that he was in the final empire yeah no as as i joked in the first two uh you know two episodes of actually three we've done three mistborn episodes now this is number four um i'll just repeat the joke again for my mom's benefit i said if ellen venture was a spice he would be flour <laughs> yes yeah, very figured, practical very you, bland yeah, i figured he was as a, as a pseudo chef somebody who yeah, cooks as yeah. well as you do could appreciate a staple? that staple yeah uh, something that but, uh yeah. yeah, I loved him in this one. How did you feel about him, though, Mom? I loved him, and I loved the transition. I think Brandon Sanderson started him off as, um, you know, like this disheveled person that we could identify with. Because I think if he had him being kingly right from the get-go, it would be hard for us to identify with him. Um, but I think that we, we kind of like fall in love with his character at the very beginning. We can identify with him. He's not perfect. You know, he's not a hero. Um, but then to see him become what he become, he becomes kingly. He becomes stately. Um, you know, he becomes worthy of his position in this book. And I just really love that. You know who I... You know who I just realized Ellen Venture reminds me of? Somebody that my mom and I know in person. Tell me what you think, Mom. How much does Ellen Venture remind you of Alan? Yes. My sister's husband, Alan. <laughs> yes, very much so. Our, one of our listeners, our one, uh, actually a patron of ours, who has suggested the book that we're going to cover in our next episode. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't considered just how much Alan reminds me of Ellen Venture, but they're like they're so similar in their in their their adorable innocence in their geeky intellect. It's just <laughs> it's it's just ah, oh, it's great. <laughs> we say that so with the, love, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on the topic of Ellen, I have a question for you guys. Okay thematically speaking and and for what it means to his character how do you feel about him becoming a mistborn at the end of this book okay okay so him becoming a mistborn <laughs> was something that i had when i was a young obviously a young testosterone filled teenager reading these books i was just like oh this sucks so bad this guy is in a world filled with with he's in a world where with no allomantic powers where allomancy seems to be the only thing that can really make a difference so i i had like I, I don't remember if I quite had a concept yet as to how Mistborn or even Allomancers are created. Um, oh wait, no, I had. Be, you know, never mind. I absolutely had. I just realized why. But I was still hoping that there would be something for Ellen to balance the 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 manner in which Vin completely overshadows him in every aspect, in her presence, in her fighting, uh, in her reputation. And seeing him turn into a Mistborn, or at least finding out that he was burning pewter, and then in the epilogue finding out that he's full Mistborn was something that had me cheering as a young man. Because I was like, yes, finally Ellen Venture gets his. Because he, he is such an innocent, such a pure, kind-hearted person who just wants, you know, the good for everybody around him. Seeing him get that and knowing that he was no longer going to be overshadowed by Vin, I cheered for a lot. Uh... Looking at it now, I kind of feel like Sanderson, if he, if he had written this 
10 years later after he was already a very established author and, ha and was as good as he is now, I feel like Brandon would have enjoyed the challenge of trying to find a, a role, a position for Ellen to take without having to become one of the most powerful magic users in the world. But I still can't complain about all the scenes that we're going to get with Ellen in the Hero of Ages. So for me, on both sides of that consideration, I'm still giving it thumbs up. Okay. Mom, how'd you feel about him turning into a Mistborn? Well, I have to say, when I first read it, I went, oh, no. Really? Um, you know, I had suspected from the very beginning um, of when we met Ellen in the first book, I suspected that he would probably one day become, um, or we would find out that he is an Alamancer or a Misting or Mistborn, something like along those lines. And I didn't want it to become true for two reasons. First of all, I didn't want it to be so predictable in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And secondly, I thought, you know, for somebody to be able to be king and to rule a, si a city and not have magic, um, that is really something to be admired. Like magic is wonderful, but I mean, obviously it makes your position and your life a lot easier if you have magic. If you can real, rule a kingdom without magic, you know, wow, that's something to be admired. So I thought maybe his character uh, lost a little bit um, in finding out that he has these powers. Although I do agree with you, Rob, I mean, uh, you know, some of the scenes in the Hero of Ages would not be able to happen if, you know, and those are awesome scenes. They wouldn't be able to happen if, you know, he didn't realize that he was an Alamancer. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically how I feel. Uh, it, I didn't love that he was made misborn. I, and and if, if certain things could happen in the Hero of Ages without him being a Mistborn, I would have much preferred it if he just remained Elend because it is uh, you know, more impressive to me that he grew into rulership and, and leadership, specifically leadership, without having uh, you know, magical enhancement, without having the ability to inspire and awe people like Francis Kelsier did in the first book with Demu, you know, like, Ellen could never create that kind of a persona for himself. He had to just be genuine and act rightly and lead his people. And he does that in this book and he earns his position by the end of it. And so the, you know, making him Mistborn at the end feels, I don't want to say unearned, but unnecessary even though it is necessary for certain plot elements, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll say I also appreciated how Ellen treats it, at least at the as of the ending of this book. He doesn't come mm. into it as his uh, as his due. He doesn't see it that way. He comes into it in, with, a, with a... He approaches it with a very pragmatic feel, and he just... His, his, his attitude is, well, this isn't the way I wanted to do things, but I'll take what I can. Mm -hmm. And if this is going to help me point humanity towards survival, then I'm going to use any tools that I have offered to me, whether I earn them or not. It goes to show, yeah. or it's very indicative of the person who he becomes in the next book. So, you know, I liked it. So that's everything I have about Ellen. Anything else? Uh, no, I, I don't have anything else about Ellen. Sweet. 
Okay. Mom? Alright, uh, Sazed, can we talk about Sazed? Yes. Okay. Poor Sazed. <laughs> poor, poor Sazed. The man has done nothing so far but the right thing for everybody around him. His intentions are nothing but pure in every aspect. He just wants to help. And seeing the one character of the crew who maintained anything resembling faith get that faith betrayed so hard is just heartbreaking. It's such a bummer. How'd you guys feel? Either of you. Yeah, I, um, I will say I forgot that his despondency begins at the end of this book. Oh, right. Uh, you know, that, or, or rather before the end of this book, that we actually have scenes with him where he has, you know, this growing despair and apathy where you know he's he's struggling with his identity so much already because that's you know without going into spoilers you know where, where we leave off in this book that is what he's going to have to deal with in the next book and uh i i always just remembered it as something that started at the beginning of hero of ages that didn't necessarily start in part five of the whale of ascension but it does make sense you know we we get to see some of the consequences of uh, you know, unintended consequences of his actions. And, and you know, it, it, it sucks, but <laughs> it, it's, it's it a miserable it world that they live in, and there are miserable consequences to their actions. Hmm. Yeah. Mom, say it. Um, you know what, I just forgot what I was going to say. I was going to bring something up about him. Why don't you go first? Uh, well, I, I want to say it's, it was, I'm glad that we really got to see him fight. You know, we got a little taste of it in the Final Empire, but it was mostly behind the scenes. Uh, like him, for example, coming to, to Vin's rescue and absolutely obliterating that Inquisitor in the rain. We didn't mm -hmm. see it happen. We heard it happen. And at the end of the Final Empire, we see him, a little bit of it, of, of him coming to Vin's rescue in Credit Shaw. But in this one, he's, Sazed's nature as a fair chemist is on full display. He is Exhibit yeah. A during the, the Battle of Luthadel. Um, and seeing him go toe to toe with Marsh after the fact was also pretty badass, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked that little touch where you know Marsh is like, "Says it, you're no warrior," and and says goes, "Yeah, I'm not, but you know what? Neither are you." Yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my my favorite says it scenes are are those of his where he gets one on ones with Vin and Ellen respectively as they ask him <laughs> for advice about their relationships, you know. <laughs> Sazed's warmth, his patience, his wisdom. This is why Sazed is my favorite Skadrian. He's mm -hmm. my number one. He's 10 out of 10, dude. I love Sazed. He's my favorite character in all of these books. So that's everything oh, I have to okay. say about Sazed. He's, um, he's also a bit of a rebel. Like He's always walking oh, yeah. a fine line, uh, pushing the limits of what he is allowed and able to do as a terrorist and as a um, keeper. A keeper, yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, getting involved uh, where normally terrorist folk would not be involved, getting involved in politics. Yeah, I mean, even Tindwell calls him out on it. She, she asks him when he arrives in the first half of this book, why, what are you, why are you here? You were, you were not told to be here. And, and, and Sazed has to tell her, look, I've decided where my, my loyalties lie, and I, I need to, to decide for myself that this is where I am more useful. 
and, and of more importance for mankind is here in Luthadel, where un, where events are unfolding. He has to, he's always been described as the rebel. He goes against a little bit against the terrorist culture, against the grain, if you will, and uh, that's just part of why I love him so much. If this was present yeah, day, he'd be riding a motorcycle with a bunch of tattoos. <laughs> as well yeah. as his, uh, he's playing some George Thorgood bad to the bone as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I like how this, you know, theme of rebellion plays in with him where, where you know, he is a terrorist he is, generally speaking, much meeker, much, uh, you know, less assuming than a lot of people would think of a rebel being, but he is a rebel. And that's something that he has to really grapple with himself. And Tindwill helps him come to terms with that because she also points out that, look, yeah, he may have been kicked out of the Synod and he, he may have been looked down upon by so many of the other terrorismen, but ultimately he was right. And if other people had listened to him, maybe things could have gone better. Maybe things could have gone differently. You know, that because he was willing to rebel like this, the world is becoming a better place. And more people in, in Tindwell's mind need to follow his example. Yeah, he's the most polite rebel one will ever meet. <laughs> that wraps up everything yeah. I have to say about Sazed. Honestly, that wraps up everything I wrote down for specific character discussions. Uh, anything else about Sazed from either of you, or are there other characters you'd like to discuss? I would like to discuss Tindwill, and I have one uh, small note on Alrianne, but uh, Tindwill in particular, in the last half of this book, uh, she is such a complicated character, even though she's not really, you know, she's not a protagonist for us, we're not getting points of view, we're not getting inside her head, but just the way she reacts to the people around her, she can have these huge swings of sympathy and empathy to being very cold-hearted and, and angry. And the way she uh, treats Elend in particular, where you, you know that there is respect there. You know she respects him and, and respects how he has grown up over the course of this book. But in the end, she turns away from him and she's very upset about him. You know, and she stays. And, and, and the last time Elend ever saw her, she was furious with him. You know? Yeah. Ellen? Um, Ellen, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when okay. they're leaving, yeah, when they're leaving and, and oh, she's, she's supposed to be going yeah, with them. Okay. And, yeah. and she, uh, yeah, she she has quite a. She berates him little, for abandoning the city. Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, but. I think Tindwell gives people what they need when they need it. And I think that's what her character is all about. There are times when she can be compassionate, understanding, and friendly um, to, like, for instance, Finn. Um, and then there are times when she can be really harsh. And at one point she says in here, when uh, Finn is asking her, questioning her, why are you so nice to me? Uh, she men she mentions the fact that she needs to be more harsh with Elon. Um, and no? I think that yeah, when she, she was upset with him... She felt that that's what yeah. he needed to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wouldn't develop into a strong leader unless he were forced into the role because he's not naturally an assertive person. He's not a natural-born leader. He's smart. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a lot of really good qualities, 
but you're right. He had to be forced to become. Yeah, he has to be shaped into one. He does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. As far as as far as Tindwell goes, I I never had much patience for Tindwell. I thought she was a little too abrasive with Ellen. I can see the the usefulness. I can like uh, and what she was saying. I just I don't know. To me, she 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 wasn't particularly sympathetic of a character. I did hope so much that Sazed would get, you know, would get something in like for his, his his, just the person that he's going to be. I wanted Sazed to win. I wanted him to have a reason to 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 validate how good of a person he is. And the fact that he lost Tindwell right when he was just starting to appreciate her in the way that he did, it was just so heartbreaking. But. Obviously, going forward, we know it's quaint with the context that we have in the future and what it means yeah, for yeah. Sazed's <laughs> character journey itself. <clears throat> I just, I, 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 myself wasn't a big fan of Tindwell, but I, I'm a fan of what she did for everyone. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I like it. the way you say that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but yeah, then my last character note is just a quick one on Alrian, where I forgot that she had a point of view at the end of this book. I totally forgot about her going off and, and grabbing Set and bringing his army back to the city. And I loved that. I, I actually really like her. Like, she's she's just an entertaining character. She's fun. And she is, at heart, a good person. Which, yeah, I, you know... <laughs> which surprised me. I was not expecting to like her character. I was expecting her to mm -hmm. just be this fluffy, arrogant, self-absorbed... Narcissist, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, she's proving us wrong, so that's refreshing. Yeah, she's so much more than just the surface appearance and, and getting inside her head and, and the way she thinks about Breeze. And yeah, there are some, there's some ethical muddy waters around her relationship with Breeze, uh, you know, there, as there are ethical issues with any application of emotional allomancy. But the way she thinks of him is is a not predatory. It is genuine. It is loving. You know, the fact that she calls him breezy which just cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm really surprised to hear you say, Drew, that you forgot that she had a point of view near the end of this book. Because earlier in the Inking Out Loud history, I did bring to point this exact scene. I forget what book it was for. I Oh my god, this is going to bother me. But I did make a reference back to this exact moment saying, doesn't this... Rem Oh, I think I just remembered it. It might have been Elaine. I'm not going to spoil too much. It might have been Elaine in A Memory of Light. But I said, I was like, doesn't that remind you of somebody? Of a specific scene where, where Alrian, uh, we ended up talking about Alrian really quickly, just diving into danger just to make her father's armies follow her and lend assistance. Uh, we talked about that oh, very yeah, briefly. That's, uh, I, I, I was thinking about that as... Um... Uh, as a different scene but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's just oh i love the fact that she had to force and she has the power to and that set has the capacity to allow her to force his hand and just mm -hmm. charging at them if you want to protect me father you better follow <laughs> yeah, i thought and, that was and cool. how set set like tries so hard not to admit that he's a good person and tries so hard to not be a good person but yeah. ultimately finds himself in situations where he has to be a good person yeah, well, I I loved his last line of that scene where he goes, "All the a good man, all the good men died in Luthadel." You know, yeah. I was like, "Oh man, that's such a great, powerful scene-ending line." But uh, yeah, that wraps up all of my character discussions for the second half of Well of Ascension. Are there any other characters that you want to discuss, either of you? No, mother. 
And no. All right, so are we ready to take off the gloves for spoilers and jump straight into our miscellaneous and our, you know, Cosmere lore segment? Sure. Yeah, okay, let's, so anybody who's listening from and, now on, if you haven't is... read... Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, and, and just to make it clear, this is spoilers only for the first Mistborn trilogy. Or or just all of Correct. Mistborn, I guess. Any any in all Mistborn, including oh, Wax. for Era 2 as well? Yeah, Era 2 as well. Okay. She, I, she hasn't I read Stormlight. I have any points. But, or, but, yeah. uh, or Secret History. Oh, she hasn't read Secret History. <laughs> yeah, but you know my memory's so that, bad. Yes. You could talk about it now, and by the time I read yeah. it. <laughs> True that. Yeah, all of... Uh, all of the Mistborn trilogy and all of the Wax and Wayne as it currently stands trilogy, even though we know there's going to be one more. She's red. So, okay, let's dive in. Um, I want to point out first that we get what I understand to be the first actual mention of preservation by name. And this is from Orsur, yes. who is actually Tensoon, telling Vin in chapter 33 that the Chondra have a religion. And he claims that humans are of ruin the capitanim, I'll add, there's a capital on that word, while his mm -hmm. own people are of preservation. And at first, you know, I shouldn't say at first, actually, really, for a lot of my of my rereads here, I was confused as to why Vin doesn't immediately latch onto this and dig for more info. But it kind of makes sense, really, if you think about it, considering how many religions that Vin has probably heard from Sazed by now, that... Uh, I guess it makes a little more sense in hindsight. But yeah, we get our first mention of preservation right there, which becomes a big deal going forward. Yes. Yes, it does. Yep, yep, um, yep. The, the amount of setup done in this book is really good for what happens in Hero of Ages and, uh, and, and ultimately, I guess, for Era 2 as well as, as Shardic influence starts coming into play. Uh you know, things like the Mist Spirit showing up and, and having, uh, you know, shards with the ability to change, you know, text as long as it's not engraven in steel and, and then the idea of metal being this thing that shards have a much harder time interacting with. Uh, lots of really good foreshadowing for where we're going in this. Mm, yeah. Um, I also want to say that according to Quan the man who wrote our epigraphs, the ancient terrorist philosopher whose writings Sazed discovers and who writes out our, you know, like, well, actually, it's, it's redundant. I just said that, writes out our chapter epigraphs. He claims that the prophecies of the hero of ages come from their own ancient prophets of old. So having never really considered this before, the ancient terrorist had ancients of their own. And that's just so, to me, humbling to consider how long these shards have been influencing the societies that they created, particularly ruin and preservation. They yeah. created the planet and the societies. Yeah, <laughs> nothing existed there before them. This um, is something... Um, yeah, yeah, I guess I hadn't... <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to clarify to make sure my, my, uh, my mom knows what I'm talking about here. Um, so the shards, I've explained to you what the shards are. Ruin and preservation, you know that they're two of the 16 shards that exist in the Cosmere here. They are, they are special, though, in that they are the only two shards that actually created the planet that they reside on. Um, what? One of two places. One of two places. Okay. There okay. is another place. Okay. Well, 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 yeah. Okay. But the distinction remains, though, that no <laughs> other shards... You've read Warbreaker, Mom. You've read 
uh, Elantris, and there are shards on those worlds, but those worlds existed before those shards arrived there. This oh, yes. Mistborn, okay. the world of Mistborn is very unique in that that world was actually created by the shards, by Ruin and by preservation, and that's why Ruin is actually able to change writings to do something so subtle and actually, you know, yeah, that's pretty much why. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, do you want to talk about Hoid a little bit? Sure. Uh, damn it. Are you talking about the footsteps? No. No? So he he is uh, on screen in this book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm he's, trying he's to remember where man. since I just went over summaries here. What's up? He's the old man leading the terrorist refugees. Uh, oh. That, that right. Ellen speaks to. Yeah. And I think this is this is one of the, the hardest Hoyt spottings. I, I never would have picked up on it. Um, had I not, you know, read a word of Brandon about it, mm. but it, it it is. I mean, he's there though. He's there. Oh, and he's I'll always also, up to something. <laughs> I'll admit, I probably wouldn't have caught that myself either if Drew hadn't pointed it out to me one fateful day, many, 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 many years ago. At this point, um, yeah, Hoyt is there. Hoyt's there. Yeah. He's always there. He's he's the the invisible watcher. I love it. Um, it, it, going forward with another miscellaneous point here about the Cosmere as a whole, or at least about one particular person. In the last episode, or maybe it was the one, actually, the, I think it was one before that, in The Final Empire Part 2, I postulated about Kelsier's late wife, Mare. And I thought mm -hmm. that she perhaps has more secrets for us to uncover, eventually. Because she was the one, for anybody who's listening, who doesn't remember, she was the one who followed the religion of the Larsta, which is a religion that I'm always paying particular attention to on this planet, since the Larsta, that religion, seemed to be what stood out in terms of it telling of a yellow sun, it told of green plants, it told of lush flowers. And I just realized in the Well of Ascension, Vin and Elend are married under, of all things, the Larsta ceremony. So, I just mm. want to say, if Brandon is half of the romantic, I think he is. He didn't just choose that one particular religion out of a hat. I'm not saying it might have yeah. any significance for the future, but I just want to point that out. Again, with the Larsta, this religion keeps coming back to the front. Obviously, there is the, the Trelicism, Trellism, that we're going to talk about in other episodes that don't feature my mother, because she hasn't read enough to, you know, have yeah. an unspoiled <laughs> opinion there. But the Larsta are so swept under the rug. I want to know more about the Larsta. They have to have more secrets. That's all I'm going to say. Fair enough. So, yeah, that's the end of my yeah, miscellaneous I, points, uh, actually. I, I have one more miscellaneous point, and I wanted to save it for this area because we can talk spoilers for the rest of Mistborn. Sweet. Um, even though it is kind of a style choice on Brandon's part, and, and that is that we have three magic systems on this, on this world. You know, we mm -hmm. have Alamancy... We have Ferrochemy, and we have Hemallergy. And the way he structures the um, the kind of explanations of the magic is very smoothly and cleverly done, where the first book, the bulk of it is about allomancy. This is where we learn how allomancy works. And we'll toss in a couple of tidbits and, and, and hints about Ferrochemy. And then in The Well of Ascension, now we see really how Ferrochemy works. We, we see what kind of things you can do with it. You can store wakefulness, you can store, you know, memories and eyesight and strength and speed and physical weight and things like that. And then we get a couple of hints about hemallergy. 
you know, we, we have more uh, weird things happening around the Steel Inquisitors with Marsh. We have uh, Zane, who's crazy and has a spike in his chest. We have these hints toward what is the third magic system. And then the third book is where we get the full explanation of the third magic system. You know, and then we get more hints about the Shardic level magic and what is going to end up happening later on down the road in Mistborn. So it's, it's the steady progression throughout the first trilogy of seeding yes. information about the magic systems instead of just dumping all three magic systems in our lap at the beginning of the first book and then working on it from there. He, he plays with mystery and, and he paces out his revelations. And I really, really appreciate that. Mm, yeah, and to be able to control himself as an author, I know what it's like myself, not being an author, but being a writer and hoping to be an author someday, knowing how, how hard it is not to just want to dump all of the secrets at the beginning or at least plant as many hints as you can and give everything away, even though you're not intending to. He's, he's so masterful at just what you said, Drew, the pace at which he gives you these breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. He's very, very masterful in that. Um, but that wraps up everything I have. Sorry, go ahead. Um. Well, that's all about not overwhelming the reader and at the same time creating suspense, like you said, giving you these little tidbits. And if he were mm. to try and explain everything in the first book, I think everybody would just become so confused and overwhelmed. You get reactions like the first Stormlight Archive yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though he barely even scratches the surface in that one. I know, yeah. But, but that world is just so involved. The, the magic mm. is so deep there. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but but that was that was all I had left for um, uh, you know miscellaneous and, and kind of lore points. Sweet. So I'm ready to talk about our favorite scenes. How about you guys? Uh, let's uh, let's do it. Okay. So just to explain to my mom here because she hasn't done this with us before, but we technically do generally do is we just each choose three favorite scenes. Drew, I'm gonna rub it in that I managed to warn our guest about that this time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Because Drew has a, a notorious history of having guests on the podcast and then not That's telling good. them That's good. to choose their three favorite scenes. And then we get sentences like, oh, I wasn't ready for this. Oh, my God. As they should be, right? So, all right. What we're going to do is I'm going to state my third favorite. Mom, you'll state your third favorite. And then Drew will state his third favorite. And then we'll just go second, second, second. First, first, first. And assuming you wrote down the order. I'm not sure if I actually told you to write down your order of preference. Did I? I yeah, I don't worry. Okay, oh, good. Cool. So I'll start. I'll start and say my third favorite scene was between Sazed and Tindwill and this intimate moment they have as they put aside their studies and they decide to talk for a brief moment about one another, how they feel, what they admire, and who they truly care about. As a teenager, I wasn't particularly moved by it in the way that I am now. You know, I loving Sazed and cheering for him as much as I do, the moment where he finally threw his feelings into the wind and he asked her to stay, I thought that was so touching. So that's my third favorite. Oh, that is good. That is that is good. Thank you. Um, Mother, what's so I, I just want to oh. tack on, that is, it is a Go great ahead. scene. Oh, uh, I, I just want to say like a little joke thing that, that has... Uh, come around with my friends you know there's there's always you know the thing like oh you convinced me you know like if if somebody asks you to do something that you wanted to do anyway and you're like oh you convinced me you know kind yeah, of yeah. sarcastically joke about it brandon wrote one of those into that scene where where tindwill you know 
gets Seiza to ask her, and then she just immediately, she's like, very well, you've persuaded me. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, and I just, love that, and I use that all the time. Instead of saying, you convinced me, I'll be like, oh, very well, you've persuaded me. Yep. It just got, yeah. Oh, that little line from Tin Will, that bit of humanity that we see in Tin Will. I, I appreciate it so much. Mom, what's Thank your you. third favorite? Uh, my third favorite is the scene in the dress shop. The first time I read the book, right, okay. it didn't, um, the importance of the scene didn't really strike me. But the second time going through this book, I thought, wow, what a scene, because it deals with so much. It deals with the inner conflict with Vin and her different personalities and consolidating them. I mean, there is Vin the street urchin. There is Vin who played Valette Renew and enjoyed, you know, the whole society ball going class kind of thing wearing the fancy dresses and then there's been um, the misborn and i think what we see in the scene is we see all three of those parts of her personality come together and come together successfully and she really grows when she Sweet. goes out and she talks for the first time although she's not very confident about what she's going to say or how she's going to react but when she goes out and for the first time, um, we, we see her as being a leader of the people in her own right as well. God, I hadn't even considered that. You know, writing all my points about Vin, I forgot that this scene actually happened. That she had, of course, to go out and talk to the Ska, and that she was <laughs> encouraged by Tindwill to go and be that person that they want her to be. I totally forgot what a, what, what a as well. remarkably important moment for her character. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't even consider that moment. That was really well done, really well spotted. <laughs> Drew, while you, while you talk, Drew, I'm yeah. actually going to go, I apologize, I'm going to pee again. I <laughs> Four-year-old girl sitting here recording in a 28-year-old man. Thank goodness the washroom is closed. Go ahead, I can still hear you though. I have my headphones on, I can still hear what you're saying. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, my, my third favorite scene actually is also an Ariane scene. It is that, uh, that scene that I mentioned earlier where she uh, shows up at Set's camp where she has, you know, sort of gathered around herself this band of brigands to protect her that she's manipulating and, you know, promises them rewards and money and things. Um, but it's, it's her internal kind of monologuing that I love the most in that scene where you see just how genuine her feelings are for Breeze and, and you see the depths to her that otherwise you would just be writing her off as, as this annoying, you know, poof of a side character noblewoman and, and that there just really is so much more to her and there's something you can latch on to and, and something you can appreciate about her and root for her instead of her being a, a nobody. So I, I really liked that scene. Nice. Yeah, that, that is right. good. Awesome. Okay, I'll go forward with my second favorite. <clears throat> Chapter 36. The point of view that we get from Breeze as he's observing and soothing the other members of the crew. Breeze has this mm. unique insight into everyone else's character and their motivations. And it, it, to me, it felt so fresh. Breeze, and I, and I wrote this down as an analogy, Breeze treats social interaction among everyone in his vicinity like a maid, stopping here to straighten little things out 
rub a little spot of dust away there. I just I, I enjoyed how Sanderson gave us another angle from which to see everybody around Breeze. I I never stopped to appreciate this scene, really appreciate it until I was doing an actual literary analysis but seeing it here I, it, I i had to pull this out and place it in my number two it's just so superb you know yeah i i really appreciate that we get points of view from the emotional allomancers in this book because they tend to have uh, a lot of really good insight in the characters around them and uh, you know it's, it's the same thing with breeze as it is with Alrienne. you know it it would be easy to sort of write him off as a callous, maybe annoying side character, but when you get in his head and you see how genuine he is, you see how much he really cares, and and uh, you know, especially in this book, you know, we find out he is actually a nobleman. He he is not a, a well-bred ska like Doxon or Kelsier. He is full-on a nobleman, and despite that, he is working with the ska, and and was working to destabilize the way of life that he came from. And it's because he has this ability to be empathetic. He can connect with other people and understand them in ways that m most other characters in this series simply can't. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I loved it so much. Sweet. So, uh, second favorite scene. Mom? What well, do you for us? I've kind of lumped all the sparring scenes between Ben and Zane together. Um, okay, I, so you like the sparring scenes. I like the sparring scenes because um, there was suspense on two levels. There is suspense, obviously, who is going to win or beat the other person while they're sparring, who's stronger, are there going to be any surprises, that kind of thing. But also, too, you wonder if these two are going to end up having a relationship is she going to leave Ellen for him uh, you know what's going to happen with these two misborn who are so apart from each other they're so alone and they seem to really enjoy each other's company even though they're sparring just because in a lot of ways they are so alike too yeah yeah that's a good that's a good choice drew second place dude mm. so my my second place one isn't super deep it, it isn't anything you know like really insightful or heartfelt i just think it's some of the best action writing brandon has ever done and that is okay. Sazed's last stand inside the gate and as he's falling and the sun is setting <sighs> and the coins glint in the air uh. and the coin strikes the coloss in the back of the head and then vin lands silhouetted on top of the wall and it's it's beautiful writing for one thing you know i don't all i don't often talk about brandon sanderson writing gorgeous prose because generally speaking he's fairly utilitarian he's pretty straightforward but this is one of those examples of his pure ability to paint a vivid picture in the mind's eye and i love it good you took my my very favorite scene Although I'm going to be expanding upon it. Oh. But I do also want to tack on what you just said. And I also want to say it's really, really something to, to see, as you said, you know, Sanderson's prose, while not being considered amongst the most flowery or lyrical of, of authors, modern authors out there right now, he still knows precisely when to start doing that. He knows when the moment is right and when it's appropriate to, to start writing in a manner 
that the scene is going to demand. And the fact that this is the scene that he that he chose to really flex his creativity, I thought it was obviously it's such a it's just such a clever move. And I'll, I'll go straight into my first place since I just admitted that this is my favorite scene. I'll just expand upon that. Says it here is losing hope, and that's a very very important thing for the Cosmere as a whole and everything that Brandon Sanderson's. Sanderson writes, in this moment, Sazed is losing his hope. He's losing his faith as the Kolos overrun the city. And then as he's looking up, we get this glimmer of a gold coin. And then Vin lands. And without stopping to utter a word, she's beginning her own slaughter after what we know was a several dozen to several hundred kilometers steel pushing and pewter arming flare. And then yes, we Canadians are outnumbering the Americans on the podcast this day. <laughs> so we're using metric for this time. What's up, everybody? She she just oh, drops and she starts saving. She's throwing giant steel doors around and she's crushing Kolos. The, the sound of the ska, what really gets me, the sound of the ska chanting her name as she does this. I, I can feel that chant reverberating in my chest when I read this scene. Like, it, it's... In this scene, it's almost the humans, not the Kolas, but the humans who feel primal, witnessing their god as she lays waste to those who dare harm her loved ones. So much spectacle, so much screen potential. I, can, I can't not pick this as my favorite scene in the book. That was right. also my favorite scene as well. Um, because, <laughs> nice. uh, I mean, just the characterization the change in her character that takes place, the action, the description, while you're reading his his uh, words, you feel like you're there and you're seeing this, you're smelling this, you're yeah, witnessing yeah. this firsthand. Um, it's so, it's, it's fast paced, but not overwhelming. Yeah. Sweet, so this is also your favorite scene? All right, so we knocked two birds out with one stone, Drew. What's your favorite scene, my man? So my favorite scene, I am I'm cheating a little bit on this one. It's really two scenes in the same chapter. Okay. Um, it's it's the moments outside of Lord Penrod's um, estate, like when Penrod is holed up with his troops and he won't let Sazed and the refugees in while the Kolos are rampaging. There is a surreal quality to these two scenes first when Sezed is talking with him and then when Vin shows up and talks with him and uh, the the this sense of quiet and stillness to the scene while all of this chaos is going on around it and then especially in the scene with Vin where she has this monster coloss pick her up and like hold her up to the wall so she can talk more nearly on a level with Penrod and and there's this you know she's she's yelling at him and he yells back and then and then the the coloss picks her up and she just says quietly i'm tired penrod mm -hmm. and he says we're all tired child you know and and they have this quiet but intense conversation almost in this frozen moment in time while the world is going to hell all around them and i love the jarring contrast of that it, it, it's it's one of the coolest moments in this whole climax, and it's one that stands out particularly to me. So that's nice. my favorite scene in the book. Nice. Nicely spotted. Right on. I'm ready to go into the final draft. 
Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll ask you, Mother, first. What are you drinking for today? As we end up, as we end our discussion, we wrap up here. Rum and Coke, which is all gone by this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what I but tell our listeners. That is my drink of choice. Yep, where uh, right before we went live, I wanted to. I you know I went into the the office there where my mom is recording, and I asked her if she uh, if if her drink was topped up, and she said it was almost gone. So I went and topped it up for her, and I don't know if you noticed, mom. Well, actually, I should say I'm pretty certain you noticed that I, I played a bit of a fast one on you there when mixing the uh, the ratio there. I made that one damn near like a third rum. <laughs> I, and I just I, I apologize for that one. I just I that's knew you weren't okay. gonna be able that's, to say anything once you had your first sip, so. That's a mama drink. <laughs> yeah, it's a mama drink. But you seem yeah. like you're holding it pretty well. Way better than I'd hold mine. So, excellent. Frank and Chief. Right on. All right. All right. I'll talk about what I'm drinking. What are you drinking, so, Rob? I'm not drinking yeah. anything particularly thematically appropriate. I guess it's kind of loosely thematically appropriate. This is a brewery that I've... Uh, I'm drinking a, a beer, a premium red ale. This is a brewery that I've uh, featured before. I don't think I've featured this particular draft of theirs before. This is from Lost Craft Brewery. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm pretty sure the the one I had previously was their Revival, and they had another one, Serious. That was Serious. That was a blue one. This here is Lost Craft's own Crimson. And I decided to go with Crimson, of course, because of the color of the sky, the Kolos blood, the human blood, everything that's happening here. I figured it was thematically appropriate. Now, as far as the draft itself goes, you know, only 4.9% ABV. It was very delicious, very refreshing. Um, It says here on the website, I I looked up, you know, the website before we started here, small batch brewed, all natural English style red ale. Uh, smooth malt forward English style red ale with apple caramel and coffee sorry not coffee toffee tasting notes I definitely picked up a little bit of the apple can't say I picked up anything else there but um, and it also says it pairs well with smoky moderately spicy foods like barbecue and I absolutely agree with that I could see myself having a nice brisket or some some uh, barbecue chicken with this this is actually a pretty good beer Uh, cheap refreshing low ABV Lost Craft Crimson. It's actually pretty good. I'm, I might actually buy it again. So that's what I'm drinking. Nice. Thanks. Well, I, I do have a thematically appropriate beer. I'm sure you do. Uh, I, I am drinking an Imperial Stout from Listerman Brewing Company in Ohio, brewed in collaboration with Bottle Logic out of California. And and uh, for anybody who really follows craft beer a lot, Bottle Logic is is a very highly regarded brewery known for you know what has become termed a pastry stout. They, they'll make highly adjuncted imperial stouts and barrel-aged stouts with things like chocolate and vanilla and blueberries and you know, cinnamon and, and all of this crazy stuff. And, and this one is no different. It is a pastry stout brewed with coconut, cacao nibs, chocolate, caramel, vanilla, and lactose. So this wow. thing is super sweet. It is super tasty. Rob, you remarked that the, uh, the head yeah, on did. it when I first poured it looked like chocolate milk. And, and you said yeah, it tasted like it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you if you had a lactose weird. one there. Okay, nice. Yeah, um, and 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 it is eleven percent. It does not taste eleven percent. This is a dangerous beer, uh, but it it is it is super tasty. Um, it is, however, uh, something that a lot of people in this book probably would have preferred to be. Although Straff Venture was technically this, and it didn't really help him, and that is out of melee range. Oh man, 
Oh, Christ. That is such a good callback. I love it. He wishes he yeah. was out of melee range. He thought he was out of <laughs> melee range. It turns out Duralumin is a hell of a metal. Yeah, everything is in melee range when yeah. it's got a Coloss sword and some Duralumin and steel. <laughs> That's dope. I like that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, it, 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 like I said, man, it's tasty. I'm really enjoying this one. Nice. But, uh, but I think that, uh, that brings us to the end of our discussion, unless we have any final thoughts. No, I'm good. I right. have one so question. This has been... Oh, what's up? There's a point in the book, once again, this goes back to the scene in the dress shop. And when Alrianne asks Vin why she's so popular, she says, because I killed their god. What do you think of that? <laughs> I like it. It's very, very blunt. That's everything that encapsulates Vin in a single sentence. Yeah, there's an amount of sarcasm in that for sure. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, because when you when you really dig into that, killing somebody's god would make you popular in one sense, but not necessarily in a good way. Yes. But because of the unique circumstances on this world and and the oppression visited upon the ska by their god, it is in the good way. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Huh. All right. All right. Well, I think that is a wrap then. This has been episode 75 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, as Rob mentioned earlier, we are going to be taking a quick break from Mistborn. We are going to be covering a Patreon-requested book, Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny. I think I pronounced that name right. Uh, we will be covering the whole book next week, and then we will be diving right back into uh, the Cosmere with the Hero of Ages. So make sure you check out those episodes. Uh, if you want to support the podcasts, uh, we are on Patreon, as I said, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Um, you, know, you can, on certain tiers, recommend books for us to read. You can get access to our monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction, uh, monthly bonus episodes, lots of goodies. Check us out there. As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo. And our special guest, Rob's mom, Linda. Hello. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having Sweet. me. Thanks for coming on, Mom. Love you so much. Thank you. Happy to be yeah. here. All right. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.